With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. After the deluge, hopes rise for agriculture water supply. More after the break. While many farmers suffered crop losses, the deluge of storms has stirred hopes for a better water supply year for agriculture after three years of severe drought and water delivery cuts. In the Sacramento Valley, David Guy, president of the Northern California Water Association, says growers are feeling encouraged with now snow piled high in the Sierra Nevada and long depleted reservoirs recovering. Agricultural income plummeted in the Sacramento Valley last year as a vast acreage of rice fields was fallowed due to a lack of water. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into our show headlines. Representative Duarte speaks out on his own WOTUS fight. Central California freshman GOP Representative John Duarte comes to Congress with a personal perspective on the Biden EPA and Army Corps enforcements of the waters of the U.S. rule. His own legal fight with the agencies. If the Army Corps of Engineers can prosecute me for planting wheat in this wheat field based on the set of facts they use there, then almost no farm in America is safe from the same type of prosecution. One that resulted in hundreds of thousands in civil fines for Duarte, who now sits on the House Ag and Natural Resources and Transportation and Infrastructure Committees, the latter with a jurisdiction over the Army Corps. We need to fight to make producers can make sure that producers can produce, that food producers can deliver a abundant, affordable food for American consumers and for the world. Duarte hopes the Supreme Court in the pending Sackett v. EPA case puts the fight over WOTUS and the Clean Water Act to rest. NAFB contributed to that report, and now here's Brian German with more Ag News. While the new permanent COVID protocols are largely similar to the emergency standard, there are some notable changes. President and CEO of the California Cotton Jenners and Growers Association, Roger Isom, said the new definition of what's considered close contact raises some concern. It's within a cumulative 15 minutes in a 24-hour period in a space of up to 400,000 cubic feet. Well, that's a pretty large space. I mean, if you can envision a 200-foot by 100-foot space with a 20-foot ceiling, that's 400,000 cubic feet. That's like looking at a cotton gin. And being at one side of the gin and somebody being at the other side of the gin, you certainly aren't, aren't going to be exposed to them. But now you could say that that's close contact because you guys were there more than 15 minutes in that same 400,000 cubic feet. This is going to open the door to all kinds of issues, and we really don't know what the impact is going to be. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is reminding producers about the assistance available to help cover certain costs of complying with regulatory and market-driven food safety certification requirements. Applications for the Food Safety Certification for Specialty Crops Program for eligible 2022 costs are due by January 31st. Up to $200 million is being made available through the program to help cover costs related to the development of a food safety plan for first-time food safety certification, maintaining or updating an existing plan, certification upload fees, microbial testing, and training. USDA's Farm Service Agency will begin to accept applications for 2023 costs on February 1st. Producers can visit farmers.gov food safety for additional program details, eligibility information, and forms needed to apply. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. 
Preparing growers with good food safety practices to meet the requirements of the FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act Produce Safety Rule is the goal of the Produce Safety Alliance. Don Stuckel, Extension Associate with Cornell University, shares the genesis of the PSA. So the, the program that I'm a part of at Cornell started more or less with good agricultural practices. Cornell had the National Good Agricultural Practices Program of quite a while before FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, came around. So it was logical that Cornell would be a reasonable location or a reasonable home for the Produce Safety Alliance when FDA and USDA needed a collaborator to do outreach in support of FISMA Produce Safety Rule, which was passed in 2015. So the Produce Safety Alliance supports education and outreach with the goal to help small and medium-sized growers in particular, but all covered growers, understand and comply with produce safety rule requirements, which are based on good agricultural practices to reduce risk to produce safety. To learn more, visit cals.cornell.edu. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm employers' labor service compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Neal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the International Product and Processing Expo, or IPPE, wrapped up Thursday in Atlanta, Georgia. IPPE is the annual flagship event for the meat, poultry, and feed industries. This single event offers the largest variety of education and interactive events for everyone from feed to fork in the egg, poultry, and meat industries. Attendees include representatives from all over the world, including operation and plant managers, purchasing agents, engineers, and researchers from the world's top feed, meat processing, and packing and poultry companies. One of the key objectives of IPPE is innovation, or bringing together buyers and sellers of the latest technology of products and services. One such product this year is Phylox from Amlan International. Dr. Mark Herpfer, Vice President of New Technology at Amlan, explains. Well, we have many products, and we're actually launching a new product today. But all of our products are based on our sorbent minerals, which are very porous and adsorbent from the perspective of binding biotoxins. And today we launched a new product called Phylox, and it's specifically targeted at the problem of coccidiosis and growing of chicken. And it's based on our clay minerals plus some other uh, phytoadditives that will specifically target the Imeria cell and disrupt the Imeria cell membrane and mitigate the, over the life cycle of the coccidiosis problem and improve food conversion ratio. And he explains how Phylox can help producers manage coccidiosis. It can be very challenging because it's not just that problem. There are other diseases, too, that uh, affect poultry. For example, necrotic enteritis caused by a bacteria, Clostridium perfringens. And, you know, gut health is important in all species. It's a balance between good bacteria and bad bacteria and the way they communicate using chemical compounds on the molecular scale 
and they also generate toxins, the bad bacteria inside of a gut that causes feed conversion issues or health issues and other longer-lived species. It's not so much the bacteria per se, it's the toxins, the exotoxins they generate and release that gets into the bloodstream and causes a physiological problem. And our products uh, will either mitigate that happening in the first place, but if these toxins are released, uh, our materials are excellent binders of these uh, toxic substances that are, cause problems at the part per billion level in an animal's diet. Herpfer says Amland serves more than just poultry producers. Yes, we not just or beyond poultry products. We sell similar-based uh, products that are based on our very unique and natural mineral into the uh, dairy applications. Uh, for example, a prime problem is being able to bind aflatoxin B1 in the feed because you don't want it to end up as aflatoxin M1 in the milk that's heavily regulated. Uh, uh, swine production for various toxins that will affect swine and other uh, diseases, specifically zeralinone causes a problem in swine, uh, it's a fungal toxin. Uh, long-lived species, uh, pets or other ruminants, uh, cattle, uh, even shrimp and aquaculture and fish. Uh, they, we, our material has the ability to bind up or scrub out certain unwanted compounds that you don't want during the digestion of the feed of that animal ending up in the bloodstream. So if an animal eats our product, goes in the mouth, and it is activated during the digestion process and binds the toxins, and it comes out, so it gets defecated. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's livestock news, U.S. pork exports to Mexico reached new heights in 2022. U.S. Meat Export Federation's John Harreth reports this is helped by the broadening of the range of cuts being sent to that country. While hams make up much of the record-breaking volume of U.S. pork exported to Mexico, support from the National Pork Board and USDA helps create opportunities for other cuts, such as jowls and loins. Gerardo Rodriguez, marketing director for the U.S. Meat Export Federation in Mexico, has more details. With this company, it's a new niche, it's a new channel, which is a meat boutique concept, kind of a high-end type of importer, selling chicharron, coming from different forces of pork. First one is the pork rind, which is basically from the skin. Then what we call the press chicharron, a lot of trimmings. And the third one is the type of chicharron that is traditionally being used with pork belly. The problem for this company that they were facing is that pork belly was getting too pricey too expensive to use as a chicharron product. So we work with them. We do this research and development project to find a different cut that we identify as an alternative. It is the pork jowl because it has kind of the same texture, similar to the pork belly. So this is the first number I want you to remember. In the first semester of this year, from January to July, the volume of pork jowl that is being sold as a chicharron, as a substitution of pork belly, 2,200 pounds per hour. That is the volume that they were selling. A successful series of seminars promoting U.S. pork loins has been expanded to additional cities in Mexico. We have an amazing program promoting U.S. pork loin 
We started in the West Coast, in Tijuana and Ensenada, with an importer that committed to invite their customers on an event in which we do wine pairing and we do a lot of different activities, but they take the purchase contracts from the customers in that moment. So we see immediate results on selling pork loin. And this is in Tijuana and Ensenada. But last year, we did a, a loin program in Cancun and in Mexico City. And this coming year, we will do it in Monterrey. And we are going to be developing new dishes for the northern part of the country. For more, please visit USMEF.org. For the U.S. Meat Export Federation, I'm John Harris. Thanks, John. And, of course, the 2023 Cattle Industry Commission and NCBA Trade Show is coming up next week in New Orleans, Louisiana. The trade show itself will be quite an experience with eight acres of products, services, and information for those in the cattle industry. They're bringing back classroom-style education to the trade show. The Learning Lounge is where attendees can stop and enjoy 12 informal face-to-face talks with leading companies in the industry. Cattle Chat will feature 20-minute TED Talk-style sessions focused on the ag and beef industry with special spotlight sessions focusing on sustainability. The Stockmanship and Stewardship Demonstration Arena will be offering unique educational experiences led by stockmanship experts Kurt Pate, Dean Fish, and Ron Gill. And, of course, walking the eight acres of NCBA Trade Show includes the latest and greatest in the industry. To learn more about it, go to ncba.org. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. There's been substantial consolidation in the retail food market in the last 30 years. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. The U.S. food retail sector experienced substantial consolidation over the last three decades, according to data from USDA's Economic Research Service. Market concentration, as measured by the herfindale hirschman Index, is a measure of the extent to which market shares are concentrated between the firms of the retail food sector at the national, state, metropolitan statistical area, and county levels. The analysis includes supermarkets and other grocery and warehouse clubs and supercenters. Although the national market is less concentrated than the average state level, according to the HAI, national market concentration increased substantially between 1990 and 2019 at 458%. In comparison, average county-level market concentration has remained relatively consistent over the past 30 years, increasing only 94%. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. When a consumer wants to buy beef directly from a cattle producer, the law treats the producer differently when the live animal is sold to the buyer compared to the sale of processed beef. If a person wants to buy beef directly from a cattle producer, the law treats the transaction differently depending on whether the live animal is sold to the buyer or whether processed beef is sold. The matter turns on whether the animal owner is the end consumer. If the cattle producer sells processed beef to the buyer, the processing of the animal must occur in an inspected facility, and the producer would also be subject to licensing, labeling, and insurance requirements. But if the producer sells the live animal to the buyer, then the producer can also do the processing and sell any remaining beef not initially purchased to another buyer. 
This means that a contract should clearly state that the live animal is being sold and in what percentage. If a specified animal is sold, the animal should be identified. Also, the calculation of the price should be detailed in how payment is to be made. Any processing fees should be set forth and the agreement should be clear that the meat can't be resold or donated. And make sure to clearly state when the animal is the buyer's property. The key point is that the owner of the animal and the consumer of the beef must be the same. Make sure you have a good custom harvest agreement to be able to use this custom exempt processing option. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. While some sustainability-oriented ag and food organizations, collaborations, and consortiums are relatively new, say a few years old, the conversation about sustainability has been ongoing for some time. Originally, the conversation was very much top-down as far as corporations and companies were creating checkboxes and saying that in order to be sustainable, you had to do these few things. Debbie Lyons-Blythe is a Kansas cattle rancher and a member of the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. She says that conversation has expanded to all levels of agriculture. And importantly, producers have to be involved. As far as from my perspective, we have been vitally involved in not only defining what sustainability means, but deciding how we're going to measure it all along the beef value chain. And for me, that's vitally important. We're not just measuring it on the farm. She says that is where the need to define sustainability as it applies to a specific commodity, let alone an individual producer, must take place. What is the definition of sustainability? Everybody has a different definition. It it took us one year at the round table to agree on a definition. The reason it took us so long is because we're not just producers. We are the entire value chain. We have members that are retailers, food service, packers, processors, feed yard operators, auction markets, as well as producers like me. And we've got non-government organizations and allied industry. It's a true round table, all working together for beef sustainability. So the first thing we had to do is truly define it. If you're going to measure something, you have to know what you're going to measure. Likewise, best management practices, like grazing management plans, can be prescriptive, but not one size fits all. We don't ranch the same in Kansas as they do in Florida. Everybody has a different geographic situation to deal with. So by merely having a plan and having it written down, working with your local resources, whether that's NRCS, your local land-grant university, by creating a grazing management plan, you are directly impacting both land, water, and greenhouse gas. Lyons Blythe also says continued development of innovations and technologies to quantify sustainable ag practices, whether it's an individual rancher or the entire beef industry, remains important going forward. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. 
Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Well, as we end the week, March corn came within two cents of our 688 resistance level yesterday. March soybeans broke through our 1520 level before setting back. So we'll keep an eye on those levels today. If March corn can close over 688, March beans can close above that 1520 level. It tells us there are plenty of buyers here on any breaks. And it'll be interesting to watch the action come Monday. Now, wheat outperforming a lot of technical signals right now. And another close today on March Chicago over 750. March Kansas City over 863 could bring in some selling, we believe. Well, we're a, about a week away from the first ever Crop Nutrition Week. It's being brought to you by AgriLiquid. It's free. It's a virtual week of learning. Register free at CropNutritionWeek.com. CropNutritionWeek.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. Next week, the streets of New Orleans will be filled with cattle producers and related industry supporters for the NCBA convention. This is the 125th anniversary of NCBA. Delegates will get an update, of course, on the market outlook, but also NCBA's suit against the Biden administration and the EPA's Water of the U.S. ruling. April live cattle closed lower yesterday, first time this week. We wonder if the 160 level will hold today. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day and a profitable week ahead. Good day, everybody. Albert J. Hernandez, the untamed chef for Agnet West. Welcome to the California Kitchen, where you can learn how to cook from an award-winning chef in under three minutes or less. I'm your host with the most, Let's Get Untamed. A special thank you to my amazing sponsor, EmusaUSA.com, www.emusausa.com, for all things in the kitchen, from pressure cookers to pans to silverware to flatware to any and everything you could think of. Emusa not only offers great quality, but at an even greater cost, www.musausa.com. My recipe today is a gorgeous, and I mean absolutely gorgeous, Parmesan polenta that is going to knock your socks off. It's very, very easy to make, so let's get untamed. The very first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take one cup of cornmeal and I prefer to use a good organic cornmeal. Now remember all cornmeal is is dried corn that has been pulverized almost like uh, like a flour mill. It was fantastic and we're going to put this into a small pot and by small pot I mean a medium pot I guess because as this cooks it's better to have a bit of a bigger pot but I want to make sure that the liquid inside of our pot stays concentrated into one area. It doesn't spread all over the place because that's how the cornmeal is going to cook. Now, very simply, when you're making polenta, uh, I want to make sure that we're using a nice chicken stock as the base flavor for this polenta. This is very, very important. 
So I'm going to do two and a half cups of our chicken stock and one cup of our polenta. That's the start. We can always add more liquid to this, but we at least want to start that way. Now, all I'm going to do is bring this to a boil. Once it comes to a boil, I'm going to just start the process of stirring. Now, this is a truly a labor of love, this dish, because you're going to have to stir for quite a bit to make sure that we fully cook all that cornmeal through and through. And it takes about a good seven to 10 minutes to do so. Once I see it start to bubble and thicken up, I'm going to add another half a cup at a time now of chicken stock and bringing that to boil, letting this really come together. Once it starts to fluff up at about seven minutes on a medium high heat, then I can add my Parmesan cheese to this and then I'll blend it down a little bit more or not blend it down, but stir it a little bit more for about another two minutes. And then I'm going to splash it with a quarter cup to a half a cup of cream, depending on how creamy you like your polenta. And I promise you, this is so fantastic. You don't need to season this at all. And it acts as a base for a great vegetable dishes. Uh, definitely something I love to serve as well with a gorgeous piece of roasted chicken. For this and many more of my recipes, tips, tricks, and all things on Tame, go to www.ajhtheuntamechef.com. As always, this is Albert J. Hernandez. You all know me as the Untamed Chef for Agnet West. Ah, yes, my favorite chicken song. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. Now, of course, some people might think it's a little odd for somebody to have a favorite chicken song, but I needed an uplifting chicken song to help introduce our story on eggs because I couldn't find an egg song. At any rate, eggs are certainly breaking news these days. And just the other day, the Agriculture Department put out a report on egg production, and USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagam says, according to that report... During December, we produced about 652 million dozen, which was about 6.6% below a year year ago. Now those eggs were being produced by 308 million layers, which was also down about 5.8% from a year ago. Shagam says HPAI, or highly pathogenic avian influenza bird flu, continues to cause losses of layers as producers have to cull entire flocks to keep the virus from spreading. This has been going on many months now, and Shagam told us the outbreaks and cullings are continuing. In fact, we had a, a couple of major culls uh, in December which obviously affected those numbers. Meanwhile, there is at least one encouraging number in the USDA report. That's the number of egg type hatching layers as of January 1st. It's a uh, number... Which tells us what is the industry doing to try and build the table uh, laying flock going forward. And on January 1st, we were looking at about 3.8 million egg type hatching layers, which was about 11% above a year ago. So again, their industry is working very hard to try and rebuild their flocks and to get production up. On the price front, lower production and holiday demand sent average wholesale egg prices soaring and... We did peak just before Christmas uh, at about $5.40 a dozen. However, as of this past Friday, the 20th... We were looking at egg prices of about three thirty-four dollars a dozen. So uh, we have seen egg prices come down, but we're still talking about fairly strong egg prices. Now, USDA has made forecasts for this year's egg production and average prices. So we are basically looking at a table egg production of about $8.1 billion dozen, up just about 5% from a year ago. And for average wholesale egg prices... We are estimating that egg prices for the year will average about $2.05 a dozen, which is down from what we have last year of $2.82 a dozen. 
But far above the $1.18 in 2021, Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. For today's interview segment, we have a portion of Farmside Chat, Farm Bureau's podcast, where President Zippy Duval talks all about how a Georgia farm is building bonds through farming. Yes, it's the Jimmy Carter that hasn't been president of the United States. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, he could have been president, but he's uh, been a good friend of mine. He and I dared many, many years at the same time when I was milking cows. So yes. uh, welcome to the show, guys. I'm just real excited about having you here. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate the opportunity. Honored to be here. Yeah. So uh, Jimmy and I, uh, just like I said, we we, uh, we raised cows and, and milk for many, many years in, in a little small dairy. And I, I don't know how his came to an end, but I sold mine out and replaced them with beef cattle. And, and in the 80s, I diversified into chickens. <laughs> And I think uh, Jimmy ha- Jimmy and his family has a different story. Uh, so, Jake, I'm going to turn it over to you and your dad and let you tell us about your story, how you transitioned from dairy uh, to what you're doing now, and uh, and tell us a little bit about growing up there. All right. Well, thank you, Zippy. And I tell you, it's um, an honor to be with you today. Um, you know, I, I like to tell people our, our farm, you know, it, it was established back in 1938 uh, by my uh, great-grandfather, who was a sharecropper. And... Um, Started off growing some uh, cotton and had a few cows and uh, moved into the dairy business. And that's um, where my grandfather and dad picked up and uh, rocked on along for quite some time. And I was actually in 1986, my dad sold the last of the dairy cows. And I, I, I thank him every just about every day for doing that. Uh, but I was a, I was a kid, in, uh, you know, in 86, and I was only six years old. But at that early age, I always had the dream of being a, a farmer. I think you follow those that you're, that you're closest to. And I followed him everywhere he went on the farm and just had the dream of being a farmer, just like him and my granddad, just looked up to them um, each and every day. And so that was in 1986. Henry County became one of the fastest growing counties in the nation. Um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, we, we sat around as a family and decided, you know, uh, what can we do with this property? How can we continue this farming uh, legacy that's been presented before us? How do we continue? And, you know, we had developers chomping at the bit to get the property. And um, we made the decision around the sunny dinner table, the same kind of the same one we're sitting around right now, Dad, right. Yeah. that we would, you know, open. Not, we had the biggest and baddest locks on the gates, but we decided, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll open those gates up. We saw an opportunity to educate the community, and that's what we decided to do um, in 2005, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, Jimmy and Jake, was, was the farm already named Southern Bell Farm? 
Yeah, it, uh, the, the way that came about is a little unusual. Um, we had registered Holstein cows, and as you know, Ziffy, we, when you have registered cows, they all have names, and, and you have a prefix. So my dad came to me. I was probably 12 years old when this happened, and he said, uh, well, if we're going to have registered Holsteins, we've got to have a prefix, so why don't you try to come up with, uh, with that prefix? So um, I, I guess my first stab at it was, uh, and I don't know where this came from. That, that, that was a few years ago. So, uh, But came up with the idea of Georgia Bell. Well, believe it or not, somebody had already used that, uh, that prefix. And uh, so I said, well, how about Southern Bell? And spelling it B-E-L-L-E. And uh, so he said, okay, that's it. And so... Our cows were called Southern Bell, whatever, you know, right. and then names following that. So that's that's how it started, and it's just, you know, stuck on af after all that. Uh, uh, so I guess if I was 12 years old, that was about the mid to late 50s, I guess. So it, uh, it was a uh, long time ago. Well, it, it has held true, and a lot of people know that name now, not by the prefix for cows, but uh, by a, a great opportunity to come and enjoy being out in the open and sharing uh, what agriculture is uh, really about and sharing it with their kids. So tell us a little bit about that uh, transition into uh, agritourism. Tell us a little bit what, about what you do and how many people you might see. Okay. Uh, so we really saw an opportunity, and that's, I think, what originally started the idea to have uh, – to do the agritourism part of the farm that we do today, we saw an opportunity, people coming to us, asking us a lot of questions about agriculture. And that was in the early 2000s. And, you know, at that time, like I said, Henry County being the population that it is, we even had uh, our some of our own family members coming. So we decided, you know what, it'd be that opportunity to open up the gates to our farm and, and educate uh, the community. And I think uh, one of the stories I like to tell is each and every, it, it almost happens just about every time we open, open the, the dairy exhibit up. Um, these kids are coming. Uh, most of them are coming from Metro Atlanta and you ask them, you know, just a general question, you know, where does milk come from? And the overwhelming answer is Kroger and Publix. Um, they think literally that their milk is being poured in the back of the grocery, behind the grocery counter back there. So we have that opportunity to educate. And, you know, I think the first year we had about 3000 school kids that come out and we were just, we were just tickled that we would have that opportunity. And, and as time has gone on, uh, we've grown the farm and developed it. Um, our mission has always been to educate the public about agriculture. Um, that's one of our missions. But it has since evolved into uh, helping strengthen family bonds and families that come out. I'm, I'm guilty of it, too. When you sit down at a dinner table, you stare at that phone and you, you're, you're with your family, but you're not with them. And that's one of the things that we try to focus in on is creating an experience that families can enjoy doing together. And um, families have responded. We're very blessed uh, from families all around Metro Atlanta. And uh, what started off in 2005, 2006 with just a few thousand people, um, we estimate that somewhere around 500,000 people are coming out to our farm each year to spend time with their families and to uh, learn about agriculture. And that's, that's really why we're doing it. Again, this was just a portion of the episode. To listen to the full conversation, visit b.org. Stay tuned. We'll have more Ag News after the break. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4H.org. 
hope you've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. In this week's California Chill Hour report brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. Extension specialist in orchard systems in the Department of Plant Science at UC Davis, Julia Marino has been working to better understand how cherry trees are accumulating chill. She explained that the main points of focus in the research have been to try and answer two specific questions related to chill accumulation in cherries. One is how the change in weather, specifically the reduced amount of foggy days in the Central Valley, is affecting the temperature felt or sensed by the tree with respect to the temperature of the air. The base of this question is that basically with the reduced amount of fog or percentage of foggy days in the Central Valley, the trees are feeling or are receiving a higher amount of radiation radiation with respect to the time when the chill accumulation model were developed. So growers are wondered, are worried that the model that use simply air temperature as an input to calculate chill may not be precise and they would like to integrate some new environmental parameter to be more precise in estimating the real temperature that the trees and the buds are feeling during these warm and sunny days in winter. The second question is still associated to um, an approach to try to better estimate chill accumulation, but in this case, I call it the physiological approach, while the previous one was the meteorological approach. In the physiological approach, our hypothesis is that we don't know or we don't understand fully what happened from a physiological perspective in the trees during winter. And if we can find some plant-based parameter to count or to quantify chill accumulation, that would make us way more precise in understanding the dormancy stage of the trees and to time better our spray application. And in this case, we selected carbohydrate quantities or carbohydrate concentration in trees because of previous studies that demonstrated that there are big changes in carbohydrates dynamic through the winter that are highly associated to chill accumulation. And so we found that this could be a good indicator for a plant-based approach to understand and predict chill in cherry. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of January 25th, the Shafter Simmis Station has logged 52.2 portions under the dynamic model with 958 hours below 45 degrees. The station in five points has registered 54.4 portions with 970 hours. There's been 1,024 hours in Merced with 56.5 cumulative portions. In Manteca, there's been 893 chill hours, equating to 55.4 portions. Finally, the Simmis station in Durham has registered 58.6 portions with 980 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in again next week for another episode. Matt McLanchin, USDA economist, explained some of the factors at work in the new USDA's 2023 forecast for grocery store food price inflation. We saw very high increases in food at home prices in 2022. The percent price increase was 11.4%, which is a level or a percent increase that we hadn't seen in about 40 years. This has led us to have relatively high expectations for price increases this coming year uh, because we we aren't seeing price decreases for food at home yet. In December, they increased by 3%. So our forecasted food at home price increase for 2023 is 8% with a prediction interval or a range of uncertainty between 45 and 11.7%.
And for the price forecast for all food, which is a combination of grocery store and restaurant food prices, our all food、uh, followed similar patterns as our food at home、uh, price increases. We saw a 9.9 percent increase、uh, at the annual level for all food prices. For next year, we do expect price increases to slow down.、Uh, right now, our midpoint or our best estimate of what food prices will increase, how much they'll increase next year, is 7.1 percent, with a prediction interval of 4.2 to 10.1 percent. The California Department of Food and Agriculture has awarded over a quarter million dollars under the 2022 California Special Interest License Plate Grant Program. The CalAg Plate Program is funded with proceeds generated through the sale of special interest ag-themed license plates and is intended to enhance ag education and leadership opportunities. California's statewide FFA program has received $210,000 to increase student access to information about career, leadership, and other opportunities. The San Joaquin County Foundation for Agricultural Education has received $10,000 to help teach students about the ag industry and nutrition through four field days each school year. Other recipients include the Ventura County Chapter of California Women for Agriculture, the San Joaquin County Office of Education, the California Foundation for Agriculture in the Classroom, and the Anaheim Union High School District. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Daniel Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvorsen on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.